Hello, it's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. We'll get back to Brendan's show in just one moment. But before we do that, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has supported Spiked in large ways and small this year. It's been a hell of a year, another year in which the world was turned upside down. All through it, I'm happy to say Spiked has been on the side of freedom and democracy and common sense, holding the line on all of the issues that matter. And we've also been able to notch up some huge achievements for us, not only growing our magazine, growing our stable of writers, now spanning great up-and-comers as well as some genuine journalistic legends, but also doing things like getting into the book publishing business with Joanna Williams's How Woke One. We've got another book coming up next year, which I'm very excited to share with you all very soon. Even though things have been very difficult for many people out there, I'm glad to say that we've continued to make the case for the principles and the issues that we care most deeply about. And we wouldn't have been able to do any of that without the support of listeners and readers and viewers like yourselves. Contrary to media rumour, Spikes is not lavishly funded by dark money. Though if you do know anyone, please do send them my way. In fact, we at Spikes are increasingly relying on the generosity of our readers and supporters in order to fund our work and our growth. And most importantly, I think, to keep Spiked free for everyone around the world to read. Because while Spiked has been going from strength to strength in recent years in so many ways, we're also, of course, encountering the sort of obstacles that come with the censorious era that we find ourselves in. So even though Spiked's readership has been soaring in recent years, we've also seen our ad revenue go down because more and more agencies coming under pressure from liberal activists are blacklisting dissenting voices like ours. So as we go into 2023, not only do we want to up the ante in our fight for freedom and democracy and all the rest, but we also want to call on more of our readers and listeners, people who really like our work and who can afford it, to support us and to donate to us any amount that they can. That for us is really how we're going to insulate ourselves against the whims of the cancellors and as well as to grow and to do all the exciting things that we've got planned for 2023. So we're asking those of our readers and listeners and viewers, if you can afford it to dig deep for us this Christmas, anything you can give is hugely appreciated. Uh, but we've also got a special offer on for the festive period. So anyone who gives £30 or more as a one-off donation will get a whole year's membership to Spike Supporters, which is a complete steal as it's usually £50 for that annual membership. Spike Supporters, to those who haven't heard about it yet, is the place to be. It's our thriving online donor community where you can access exclusive events, put questions to the Spike team as well as brilliant invited guests. You can get access to our comment section, which is for Spike Supporters only, where you can argue the toss over all of the issues of the day and what it is that we're writing about here on Spiked. And you get discounts on all of the books and the merchandise that we sell in the Spiked shop. So this Christmas, please do consider making a donation to us here at Spiked. Anything you can give is greatly appreciated, but there's that extra special sweetener for those who get £30 or more this Christmas. To do so, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. That's spiked-online.com forward slash donate. And on behalf of everyone here at Spiked, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's helped us in large ways and small and have a brilliant Christmas and New Year. Now, back to Brendan's show. Look, I was there on January 6th. I covered it. I, I lived near the Capitol. I absolutely hold Trump morally responsible in the speech that he gave to them. That, all of that said, the bad things that he said that, that contributed to this were said in person to those people. They were not the things that were said on Twitter. 
They're trying to justify you know, remarks he makes a few days later where he says, and I'm not going to be attending the inauguration. Like, what is the justification for having him banned forever? There's no justification for that whatsoever. They don't have one. They couldn't, even, they couldn't describe one to you if they tried. And they, they, and they don't even try in, in what's revealed. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Robbie Suave. Robbie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Robbie, it's great to have you on. I specifically want to speak to you about the Twitter files and what the Twitter files tell us about content moderation at Twitter prior to the arrival of Elon Musk and the possibility that content moderation was not so much about upholding community standards, but really about enforcing political orthodoxy and in some cases even sidelining and silencing problematic people, uh, conservative voices, people on the right, and so on. Um, So you've written about the Twitter files over at Reason magazine. You've spoken about them on your TV show, Rising, on Hill TV. And most listeners will be aware that the Twitter files are a series of revelations that Musk promised to make. We've had, so far, we've had the journalist Matt Taibbi, Barry Wise, and Michael Schellenberger really revealing internal conversations and internal interactions at Twitter that point to a pretty systematic effort to suppress certain ideas and to elevate others. So just to kick us off on the Twitter files, Robbie, I wonder if you could tell us if you were shocked by these revelations. Obviously, some of it is stuff we knew or stuff we guessed at already. But generally speaking, have you been taken aback by the revelations? Are they, are they something that have concerned you as someone who's interested in freedom of speech? Yeah, I, I think what you just said is key. I, I'm not shocked. Um, I, I, am, uh, I am definitely disturbed by what we're learning. I, I see so far the Twitter files as mostly giving us more evidence of a lot of things that we either suspected or had good reason to believe were going on. It's not, it's not total. So it's not shocking, but it is absolutely something that should be of concern to everyone who, vol- uh, who, who values free and open discourse. Um, I, I think it, the shocking component is probably how non-transparent all of this was for so long. For instance, we're you know now we're learning exactly how what everyone described as shadow banning works. Uh, you know that was kind of derided as a conspiracy theorist, and and now everyone who wants to defend the previous practice saying, "Oh no, we all knew this was going on all along." <laughs> no, you denied that it was happening, and and it, sure, we all knew there was content moderation going on, and that they were minimizing like particularly abusive, harassing people. We did not know that anything akin to what was revealed in, in one of the dispatches, I believe the one from Barry Weiss, about how they uh, picked people essentially who were too politically problematic from their standpoint and then made them unsearchable or made them their tweets would not be amplified or things like that. Spanning subjects from just kind of political conservatism, people like um, uh, like the head of Turning Point, to people with a contrarian COVID message. And actually, I, I think COVID is probably the domain where this really went totally off the rails, even beyond the Trump decision and the Hunter Biden decision, which so much of the, of the Twitter files is about. But um, people, you know, Twitter can have whatever policies it wants. It, that was true under the previous regime. That's true under Elon Musk. But we as users have every right to be outraged when the policies made no in, internal sense and actually were opposed by many people internally. You have mm-hmm. factions. That's what we're seeing, the factions within the company 
some uh, you know, very kind of liberal activists wanting to take stronger action against all sorts of speech they don't like. And then even sort of the normal content moderators being being shunted aside for people like Vijaya Gad and, and Yol Roth, who are then making these these decisions, you know, be prior to January 6th, kind of on the fly, contrary to the to the more careful policies that the actual content moderation dis- uh, team had been doing. So it's uh, I, I think it's really a window. Yeah, absolutely. And um I really agree that, you know, that there had been this notion that shadow banning people who claim to have been shadow banned on Twitter, they were often treated as conspiracy theorists or paranoid. I remember a few times, I mean, I have never had much faith in uh, freedom of speech on Twitter. There's always, it's always been pretty clear that they've, uh, they've become quite censorious over the past couple of years. But even I tended to look upon people who said they'd been shadow banned with an element of suspicion, thinking, have you really been shadow banned? or is it just that you're not making the impact you want to make? But now we do know that that was happening and it was pretty explicit. And some people uh, like uh, the Turning Point guy, Charlie Kirk, was put on lists that said, do not amplify. And then we had Jay Bhattacharya, the um, Stanford professor and lockdown skeptic from the Great Barrington Declaration, who was effectively put on a trends blacklist to ensure that he would never trend. I mean, pretty serious steps taken by Twitter to limit the impact of people and ideas they simply didn't like or, or which they disapproved of. So I want to get into some of that stuff with you. I want to take it one Twitter file at a time, I suppose. And the first one I want to ask you about is the stuff on Hunter Biden, which which came out at the beginning of, of these series of revelations that Elon Musk and, and these journalists are making. In my mind, the Hunter Biden revelations were, in some ways, the least uh, shocking. These, this was stuff we pretty much knew, that they had suppressed the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop uh, in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, that they took pretty extreme measures to ensure that it couldn't be shared that it could be, couldn't be talked about. We know that they locked the New York Post out of its account, which was an extraordinary action to take against one of the oldest newspapers in the United States, a very esteemed organ of news and information. But what do you think the the further information we've received about the Hunter Biden story tells us in terms of how things worked inside Twitter when they were making these kinds of decisions? Yeah, it- and you're right. I think there's a very real sense in which this was the least interesting of the disclosures so far, because we really did know all of this. And also, this disclosure was omitting some very key information that maybe they just don't have, but they didn't share. And I think it's, it is fair to criticize the process of how this has all rolled out on Twitter itself, often in threads that were very difficult to follow. <laughs> I don't, because I'm still not clear how the initial decision that to flag the New York Post story as as unsafe content was made. So in this disclosure, we we got a lot more on how uh, the, the deliberative process for deciding that we're going to keep suppressing it under a hacked materials justification. But that was already you know part that part two, part one, which we don't really know. I don't know what employee of Twitter or process, maybe it was a process, it might have been automated in some way, or that enough people objected to it or complained. We don't know how this works. Maybe if enough people flag a piece of content as problematic, something automatic happens to it, and then later they review it. I I don't know if it was a person or a process. And I think that would be very interesting to understand. So we're we're entering the story midway. And then it's still very interesting, important information. 
how how it was this hacked materials justification that well what was on the laptop was obtained illicitly and was violating some kind of po- policy of that and, and as they're discussing it it's clear not everybody really buys that or thinks that necessarily covers this instance so that is all all very interesting and and you know it, it goes from there but uh, but that's basically what we already knew we knew they came up with this justification kind of on the fly that even the people who worked there, some of them thought it was BS and was not going to hold up. And uh, I was I was very interested to see figures like uh, Representative Rokana, who's a very progressive Democrat, um, but uh, but one with kind of old school ACLU esque free speech commitments. Mm. You know, contacting them about this and saying, "Hey, wait a minute! You know what you're doing is really contrary to an ethos of free speech, and I don't think you've thought this through." You know, nailing every point that would be used against Twitter to come. So st- still quite interesting, but um, yeah, this, this was the one that was the most, yeah, I, I did already know this. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I think what the Hunter Biden revelations in the Twitter files, what they did do, as you say, is they added a bit more information to things we already knew. Uh, and I think I agree. One of the most striking things were the internal disagreements about whether this could be suppressed under the hacked materials policy. So one of the justifications we frequently heard from Twitter when it took this action was that it couldn't be sure whether this uh, information from Hunter, La- Hunter Biden's laptop had been hacked, whether it had been uh, uh, obtained in, in an underhand problematic fashion, and therefore they were being cautious. But just on that justification itself. It is interesting that there was disagreement inside Twitter's own offices with some people, including Brandon Borman, who was the vice president of global communications, who was not convinced uh, that this was a hacked materials justification for suppressing the Hunter Biden story. But do, do you think there's a that there's an element where, because I think one of the impressions some of us had off Twitter when it took these kinds of disastrous decisions is that they were behaving in a very authoritarian, sometimes quite tyrannical way. But I think what the first Twitter files have shown, especially in relation to the Hunter Biden story, is that they were kind of making it up on the hoof as they went along, searching for justifications to do something that they instinctively wanted to do. So do you think there was an element where they were just inventing uh, the story as they went along, making it up in order that they could quite instinctively push down the Hunter Biden story in particular, which they thought might have a damaging impact on Joe Biden's chances in the 2020 election? I think they are doing all that. But I think a very important piece we always have to consider is that they are being, they being the social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, Google, etc. They are being um, screamed at all day long, every day by activists and by the mainstream media and by political figures. They can't make anyone happy. And the people they're most afraid of are, you know, tech reporters at the New York Times and the Washington Post and other places who every day accuse them of basically genocide, accuse them. American democracy is dead because Twitter has not censored enough content. Um, uh, uh, Violence and hate are at their highest level because Facebook hasn't taken enough action against people we don't like. They why why hasn't Congress swooped in yet to break up these companies or change their liability there you know they have blood on their hands that and that only got worse during the pandemic obviously but it was still that the rhetoric rhetoric around that ever since Trump's victory in 2016 has been so over the top you can't state it in a hyperbolic enough fashion it was so crazy so I, I while I'm very uh, frustrated with a lot of decisions these companies made 
I think it's it's it wasn't just always of their own volition. They had they were being accused of, and, and this was happening in real time. Mainstream reporters saying, "Oh my god, this story, you know, no one should be allowed to see it. It is so dangerous and so harmful, and anyone letting you see it is complicit in this crime." And you know what? It, it it's intimidating to be yelled at by all these people with uh, tremendous institutional media power. And I think that really led them astray. Not saying that lets that lets them off the hook or anything, but I, I think we, we the media cannot wash their hands of the role they played in persuading all of these people to do this. And when I interviewed um, uh, people at Facebook for the for the book I wrote about content moderation, Tech Panic, and I asked how does a con, you know how does a controversial moderation decision get made, and they say, look, we rely on cues from the mainstream media. We, we, we really do rely on them and we know we're gonna be in trouble if we don't listen to them. So, so that's something to keep in mind. I want to ask you about the mainstream media shortly and, and, and its lack of response in some situations to the Twitter files. But I think in relation to the Hunter Biden story in particular, I think there was an, a huge amount of complicity between the decisions Twitter was making to suppress that story and the mainstream media's ignorance of it and, and just their willingness to turn their eyes away from it and pretend it didn't exist or to say that it was Russian disinformation or whatever else they were saying. And we know that it took the New York Times quite some time to acknowledge that the laptop was real and the materials from it were real. And, and the fact that it took them so long to do that is quite a story in itself. I want to ask you now about the uh, the a subsequent batch of Twitter files. This one was put, uh, was uh, written by uh, Barry Wise uh, in relation to the subject of shadow banning. So she has confirmed again something that some of us suspected, but it seems to have been even more uh, entrenched and uh, widespread than than we might have thought. She has confirmed that there were indeed many situations in which uh, Twitter blacklisted unfavorable content, content that it didn't like, controversial conservative voices, um, lockdown skepticism, COVID misinformation, as it was sometimes referred to. Uh, as we said earlier, Jay Bhattacharya was caught up in this. I happen to think he is a very respectable, interesting person, absolutely not someone who should be blacklisted or censored although I don't think anyone should be blacklisted or censored. So this was some pretty serious stuff that Barry Wise uh, revealed. So what do you think we've learned about shadow banning? Now, in your piece on, on these files that you wrote for Reason, you make the point that, of course, strictly speaking, no one was absolutely shadow banned. You could still go to their Twitter page. You could still see their tweets if you wanted to find them. But there still was a system, wasn't there, where they were being pushed down from trends, pushed down from the homepage, which meant that people were less likely to find out what they were saying. Yeah, absolutely. This was the part of it that probably bothered me the most in terms of what we learned. And, you know, people will point to this like old article in Slate um, explain like, oh, well, they said they were going to do things like this. Okay, they also say in that article that they were going to move toward making it transparent mm -hmm. for how this works. And I think that would have solved so many of the issues. Imagine if they, you know, they, you have a tweet that they think is very confrontational or is causing harm for some reason, and you get some kind of timeout or pause, but then the steps are very clear for what you do to return to a normal amplification that would be such a vast improvement. That would drive people crazy in such a less visceral way. 
Because so much of this, the lack of transparency is what I think makes people rightly furious. You don't know if people are not seeing your tweets because, right, maybe you're just less interesting. Maybe the algorithm has made some news-related change. Facebook, like this is, these are legitimate things they can decide to do. Facebook decided to deprioritize news some point in the last few years. It, you know, vastly changed the reach of the magazine I work for, Reason, on Facebook and, and, and many other publications. Facebook just made different priorities. It's their platform. They can do that. They can decide that's how they want it to be. But when it's not clear to you why specifically you have you been singled out, like it makes people, I think it makes people conspiratorial and crazy. It makes them paranoid. And now we're learning that that's exactly what was happening. And on such a, again, the, the COVID stuff is, is where my level of concern jumped up astronomically. Because here they're making, you know, they're weighing in on legitimate policy debates with that are the dynamics of which are changing in real time, and they're shaping the, you know, the 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 borders of what is allowable in those debates. Even as so many things that we thought were crazy at the beginning were plausible by the you know, the the whether good right thinking people are supposed to wear masks and how often and what are circumstances and what kind of masks changed wildly. Even among, I'm not, I'm not coming at it from a you know crank contrarian perspective. Even among you know, the most Fauci loyalist people, that, that thinking has changed. It changed about, about whether vaccines are holding back cases. It changed about, the, the, uh, frankly, the nature of the origins of the, of the pandemic. It is now legitimate, finally, to raise the question of whether this might have been a, a lab leak incident. These were all things that at, at various points you were, you were in serious jeopardy on social media for saying. And again, often being done at the behest of, in that case, not just the media, but the government. Joe Biden said you have, these companies have blood on their hands for allowing any kind of dissent about vaccines. Explicitly, the White House communications director went on TV and said, yeah, unless more is done, we're going to change their their legal liability protection to subject them to all this law, these lawsuits. So it, it's akin to that, um, the, the level of suppression of speech coming that, that was on the platform's it is now more evident than it was before. And, and then also the communication with media and government actors. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's 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 really true that the, the COVID censorship or the COVID uh, censure, at least, that was taking place on Twitter is, is the most worrying in some ways. Because one of the arguments that people make, which I think is a false argument, is that in a time of crisis, and, and COVID was undoubtedly a health crisis for the whole world, in those kinds of moments, uh, freedom becomes less important. You just have to do what's the right thing to do. But I, I actually think freedom, particularly freedom of speech, the freedom to ask questions, becomes more important at times of crisis so that we can explore all angles, explore all possibilities, allow for the possibility that lockdown was the wrong thing to do, allow for the possibility that masks are not very useful. Uh, but very often that kind of uh, discussion was suppressed. And I wanted to ask you about one of the justifications for its suppression on Twitter. So uh, Barry Wise points out that Yoel Roth, who was at the time the head of trust and safety at Twitter, who's now become a very controversial and quite bullied figure uh, uh, over the past few days, his, one of his justifications, one of the arguments that he made for the suppression of these kinds of discussions, especially pertaining to COVID and vaccination, is that misinformation causes harm. And it's, it's a very interesting way of putting things, firstly, because there is always that question, who gets to decide what is misinformation? You know, who, who gets to make that decision? Who gets to make that choice? And, and what, is their, how, what is the wisdom they have used to make that decision that something is misinformation? But also, if 
misinformation causes harm, then uh, as you pointed out in one of your pieces, that would justify all forms of censorship. Any form of speech that could be said to cause harm to people's health, whether their mental health or their physical health, it could easily be crushed on the basis that that's not acceptable. So I want to ask you on on misinformation in particular. Obviously, there is such a thing as misinformation and disinformation. But over the past few years, it does seem that that phrase has become a catch-all excuse for suppressing sometimes just ideas that people don't like. And they are now kind of bundled under the title of misinformation, and then they're just hidden away from us to protect our health. Yeah. I mean, look, obviously it's true that misinformation can can cause bad things to happen, can misinform people, can make bad choices about their lives and their personal health. But if you you know believe in a kind of ethos of free speech where where you know people should be allowed to debate and discuss even provocative or controversial ideas or ideas that are likely to be wrong it's partly because who decides what's misinformation and so many times now we have seen in particular people who claim to specialize in detecting misinformation i'm talking about you know our our government experts our our disinfo cops uh, you know, Nina Jankowitz type people, uh, misinformation beat reporters. This is now an entire media industry identifying misinformation. Even to some extent, federal health advisors, I don't think they've shown any ability to more correctly identify misinformation than anyone else. In fact, I think if you describe yourself as a media figure who specializes in misinformation, at this point, I'm frankly less likely to trust what <laughs> you're going to say because so many times it's just this total partisan spin and the and right these are people these are these are experts they say at spotting misinformation but these are all the people who said that the hunter biden laptop was a you know a russian disinformation campaign and i remember when that story came out and i i read it i'm like okay you know this is a this is a pretty right-wing media outlet so i don't know if all of its conclusions with how this impugns joe biden really makes sense to me um, it is very, you know, it, it's certainly partisan and, and trying to have an input, uh, having an argument on the election, which they're absolutely right to do. I'm not sure what I'm going to make of their conclusions, but I'm listening to people saying, well, yeah, this is Russian disinformation. I'm thinking, well, but there is a laptop repair guy. Do you think the Russians hired an actor? That seems very unlikely. I don't really believe that. That would, that would be kind of extraordinary if they'd done that. So that doesn't make sense. So even from the beginning, like, I'm not saying everything in this was correct. Or right, but the idea that this has somehow been planted by Russia doesn't make sense given that it involves like actual people. Um, So it's that kind of like common sense that is just absent from the misinformation cops all the time. So I I I agree that misinformation can cause harm, but also banning misinformation can cause tremendous harm, as as we've seen, because the people doing the banning can be wrong or, or rely on people who are very biased and very partisan. At Facebook relies on you know, its fact checkers and the fact checking organizations it partners with. Those people are just activist organizations that have that are, I think they're probably less informed than just kind of normal media outlets or something. And they've deputized the, the people who do the, the fact checking on COVID or environmental topics are particularly uh, horrible. Uh, they'll, they'll flag stories that are, and it's haphazard. This has happened to me where they'll flag a story I've written as misinformation. And I'll be like, well, wait a minute. My story is just like, hey, I read an interesting story in the Atlantic. Here it is, a quoting from it. Did you flag the Atlantic story as misinformation? Because there's nothing different that I said than what they said. 
anyway, it's nuts. So uh, that sentiment is true, but can lead you to very, you know, very dark places in terms of content moderation, which is not to say there, there shouldn't be any content moderation. Truly, we do not want to live on a platform that just like allows everyone to be as vile and awful as possible. Um, but we want to devolve, I think, we want to devolve content moderation decisions basically to users whenever possible. Like let you let individual users pick their Twitter experience, pick who they want to interact with, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of exposure works for them. That's, that's the way to do it instead of having us all kind of mad at each other all the time about your know, top down rules, I think. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's a a refreshingly old-fashioned view that we should trust ordinary people to <laughs> decide for themselves what they want to see and and what they think is correct and what they think is incorrect. Um, I, I, I agree about the harm point, and I think what's interesting is that protecting people from harm has essentially been the argument for censorship since the beginning of, of, of censorship, you know, whether it's protecting people from the moral pollution of heresy or protecting children from the harm of video nasties in the 1980s or violent video games in the 1990s uh, or protecting women from reading scandalous novels in, in the early 20th century. You know, this it's always been about protecting people from harm. And I think through the misinformation idea, which is sometimes correctly used, there is misinformation out there. Sometimes I think it's used just to describe political ideas that the establishment doesn't like. Once again, we're seeing a rehabilitation of that idea that there are a select group of people who should be protecting the rest of us from harmful ideas, which I think is always a troubling authoritarian instinct. I want to ask you about Twitter's banishment of Donald Trump. So these the, the latest Twitter files have talked about the decision-making process behind the uh, expulsion of Trump from Twitter in January 2021, shortly after the Capitol Hill riot, when those idiots ran amok uh, uh, in the Capitol building and caused all sorts of harm up there. And Trump was banned. Now, I always thought that the banning of Trump was a terrible, terrible mistake. I don't think it's right to prevent a man who was then still the sitting president of the United States, voted into office by 63 million people uh, to prevent him from speaking in the digital town square. I think that was an extraordinary act of overreach by the social media oligarchs into democracy itself. So I always had a problem with it from the very beginning. But what's really interesting about these latest Twitter files is, again, it's the almost ad hoc way in which the decision was made. It's the fact that behind the scenes, lots of people at Twitter were saying, look, Trump's tweets, the tweets he was ostensibly banned for, they are not violations of our policy. They are not incitements to violence. We really can't justify this in terms of him inciting violence. There was a lot of that discussion going on. And then eventually there were discussions about it possibly being coded incitement to violence, secretive incitement to violence, you know, as if they were reading Trump's mind or reading the minds of his supporters. What have you gleaned from those internal conversations in the run-up to probably the most drastic decision Twitter has made, which is to ban the president of, of America? Yeah, it's a, it seemed clear from reading um, all those dispatches that they realized they didn't have a good argument for permanently <laughs> banning him, but they were just so done with, they wanted to because they were, you know, feeling pressure from every direction. And they're using that term incitement to violence, 
which look again, it's a private company, so they don't have to. They can honestly, they can do. They don't have to have uh, rationalizations that make any sense. Although I don't think they would think it that way. They would think their rationalizations are making sense. But it, like incitement to violence from a legal standpoint is one of the most clearly adjudicated um, constitutional issues from the Supreme Court, and it's a very high bar to what is incitement to violence. Look, I I, I was there on January 6th. I covered it. I, I lived near the Capitol. I went down to cover it and watch it unfold. Um, it was horrible. I, I do not, I am not someone who will stand for any like January 6th kind of rewriting of history. It was embarrassing to watch this angry mob of, of, of conservative, of Trump supporters. I always said, I always heard Republicans would not riot. Nope, they rioted. They smashed windows. No one made them do it. Deep state didn't trick them. It wasn't secretly Antifa. It, it was conservative Trump supporters. They did it. And uh, they, they, the people who went in should face consequences uh, appropriate with their crimes. And I will go a step further and say, I absolutely hold Trump morally responsible in the speech that he gave to them you know, having told them things that were not true about the election for weeks, repeating them, stoking their anger, and and then that happened. I don't think it would meet the legal definition of incitement to violence. I, I don't think he could be prosecuted for it. I absolutely think he is morally unfit to be president because of it. It was really bad, and it, it the, he should have been held accountable. Um, I mean, by the Senate and, and by voters, if it comes to that. So all of that. Absolutely. So you, no one can say I am I am underplaying the horror of that day. Mm. That, all of that said, the bad things that he said that that contributed to this were said in person to those people. They were not the things that were said on Twitter. Mm. They're trying to justify you know, remarks he makes a few days later where he says, and I'm not going to be attending the inauguration. Like it's it's silly. It's so silly. And if you want to say that, okay, well, it, we, we needed a, I guess you could have argued we needed a cooling off period. He, he gets paused because Trump people in and around the Capitol or in D.C. are way too fired up and too hot-headed right now. And, and they, they are causing actual physical violence. So his account is paused. What is the justification for having him banned forever? Mm -hmm. There's no justification for that whatsoever. They don't have one. They couldn't, they couldn't describe one to you if they tried. And they, they, and they don't even try in, in what's revealed. So, uh, so it, it, it's another very questionable long-term content moderation decision, even if I can somewhat understand in the short term doing something and then making it clear why and making it clear, you know, what the steps will be to rehabilitate him and allow him to return to the platform. As I said, this should just all be very transparent and you, you should explain to people, you know, what they need to do to be in good standing again. And then people will be less crazy trying to figure out what, to, what their offense was or who, or who they, who they made mad inside this this insane kind of content moderation um team inside twitter uh, I, I wanted to ask you just on the on the trump thing and the trump decision that twitter made whether you think there was a generational aspect to this now that it's not that's not necessarily why twitter finally made the decision to to dump trump i think they probably wanted to do that for quite some time and they were looking for an excuse or they uh, judging by some of those twitter files revelations they essentially fabricated a reason through, you know, the idea of coded incitement and so on. But what, what's also interesting about the latest Twitter files revelations is the discussions that were taking place once the decision had been made to ban Trump. So we saw we, there have been revelations that Twitter employees were incredibly gleeful about this. 
they were saying that allowing Twitter to be the arbiter of truth in this way gave them a warm, fuzzy feeling. That was one thing that stood out for me. And also people uh, people who, who were working at Twitter were saying things like, look, Trump's a real problem. And they compared him to the Christchurch shooter who killed um, scores of Muslims in New Zealand, and and one even compared him to Hitler. So you you rightly point out that the United States, with its great traditions of freedom of speech, has an incredibly high bar for uh, proving in- incitement to violence, which is the one justification in the U.S. Uh, under which freedom, uh, under which speech can potentially be punished. Um, but do you think one of the problems is that there are younger people working at Twitter who have imbibed a newer idea, which is that speech and violence are quite similar. Words can be incredibly wounding. Uh, We might want to control speech in the same way that we control assault in the sense that both of them are both of those things are harmful to the individual and 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 society must protect the individual. Some of the Twitter files revelations about the post-Trump banning discussions suggest to me that one of the problems there is that the employees have bought into fashionable new ideas about speech itself being a potentially violent phenomenon. I think that's absolutely the case. It's something you and I have talked about on uh, you know many other occasions uh, when we've done uh, presentations or discussions at events, talking about you know the changes that happen on college campuses where all of a sudden you have young people who think it's the administrator's job to coddle them and protect them from harmful ideas, and that speech can wound the same way that you know physical actions can. And then they leave campus and bring those ideas into the tech sector, into the law sector, into the business sector, into the, you know, every kind of facet of life, uh, which we've seen, that's definitely taking place. Although in recent years, even more so than that, it's the misinformation thing. Mm, It's the, uh, and that is born of a need to explain why Donald Trump won 2016. They, They could not, the mainstream media doubled and tripled down on this idea that it's impossible that Donald Trump could have won. The only way he could have won is if there was something, you know, semi-illegitimate about it because people were so tricked by lies, possibly of foreign origin. They needed a foreign, they needed an outside adversary to explain it. And that has become the fashionable explanation for how we could have possibly gotten ourselves in that. And so then once you start down that path, once you start saying, oh, well, the people who voted the way I didn't want them to vote, well, it's because, you know, they saw, so they were in some Facebook group and some some bot that isn't even a person, but it was maybe it was Russian or something. It, it, like that's the pathway for them to explain how everything happened. And then you could see if, if that becomes your really kind of... Um, organizing principle is around that idea that harmful misinformation, possibly of foreign origin with this right wing framing has almost mind controlled millions of people, then I could see why you would become extremely worried about people saying things online that you don't like uh, in terms of election, in terms of COVID, etc. So that's uh, it's it's a combination of the earlier speech can be violence if it hurts my feelings type type thing that we saw rise from like the 2012 to 2015 period with this newer, very desperate fear about, about misinformation. Hi, this is Toby Young. 
I'll be joining Brendan O'Neill on Monday, the 19th of December at 7pm for a special live edition of the podcast. We'll be discussing all things free speech from the Twitter files to the online safety bill. You won't want to miss it. Uh, go over to Spiked now to find out more. Okay, Robbie, just a couple more quick questions for you. I want to ask you about what is potentially the most serious revelation of the Twitter files, which is that content moderation decisions at Twitter over time became increasingly reliant on input and advice from the FBI and from the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which even just saying that sounds extraordinary. The notion that these uh, powerful wings of the American state were giving tips to Twitter in terms of what to look out for, what to sideline, who they might want to add to a trends blacklist or whatever else it might have been. Uh, now, this is serious on so many levels. Firstly, it's serious because in, in the US, you guys are lucky enough to have a First Amendment, which forbids the state, the government, from encroaching on the people's speech rights. We don't have that here in the UK, unfortunately. Um, and this does look like an, an effort of uh, parts of the state to put pressure on a private company to carry out censorship that they might not be able to carry out themselves in the public realm. So almost a, an outsourcing of the burden of censorship to this private company. So it's it's very worrying in terms of its undermining of First Amendment rights. But also it does suggest that Twitter had become something very different from what it originally planned to be. It famously used to refer to itself as the free speech wing of the free speech party, a platform that would circumvent all the old um, machines of government and gatekeepers of information and newspaper editorial uh, uh, judgments and allow people to speak freely. And now we have a situation where it's getting advice from some pretty sinister actors within the state as to who it should suppress. That's pretty disturbing, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And it goes so far beyond you know, what might be a legitimate basis for law enforcement to talk to these platforms. Because look, I get it. Deterring violence is a, a legitimate a crime. Terrorism is a legitimate function mm -hmm. of government. If the FBI wants to contact Twitter or Facebook and say, look, we found a group that is ISIS or something like that, and we would like you to take action against them, I think that is absolutely fine. It has gone so far beyond that to policy questions where they are urging policy responses with respect to misinformation, with respect to COVID, with respect to, to questions about elections, which I, again, I think the other side of, of the whole election denial stuff is, is lunatic stuff. But it's your, it's your right to have crazy opinions. And, and it's the government, as you said, the First Amendment is supposed to stop them from doing this kind of thing. The only good news here is that to the extent law enforcement or, or the DHS or the CDC or whoever it is, is motivating some of these bad content moderation decisions, there, we can have a policy response to that. It's frustrating because there isn't a, really a government policy response to Twitter having policies you don't like because if you impose on them policies you do like, well, in some sense, that doesn't that violate the First Amendment too? But it, we, we, can, uh, we, we can have different policies for the CDC and the FBI. We, like it, we could have a policy of the Congress could pass a law saying the communications agents of these organizations will not talk to social media in this way or it's a so you can be fired if you do that, that it, it is wrong and not in the spirit of the First Amendment. If it doesn't violate it outright, it might violate it outright. We could have that battle out, too. I would love to have that battle out as well. But uh, yes, I would I would 
love to empower uh, political figures to 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 take action against the against them themselves. Yeah. <laughs> take the take the rock out of their own eyes, and 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 so that goes for all of us. We can for every criticism we have of big tech, we have to have two criticisms of big government because they motivated a lot of this. Okay, Robbie, my final question for you kind of follows on from that and follows on from discussions I've had with um, people like you, people at Reason, including Nick Gillespie over the past few years about the issue of um, Twitter being a private company. You've mentioned that a few times in this chat. You know, private companies can make their own rules and then we as consumers or citizens can choose whether or not to engage with that private company and follow its rules. Do you think that's sufficient in the modern era? And the reason I raise that, I mean, we've just talked about the fact that Twitter was obviously at a very important intersection over the past few years of enforcing the cultural elite's political diktats or doing the bidding of the FBI and other wings of the state in terms of um, pressuring uh, certain people to to stop saying things or to, to sideline certain views. In Europe, uh, including in the UK, we have a situation now where governments very often outsource censorship to private companies. So they don't want to bring in new laws saying that you can't say certain things, but they do constantly put pressure on the social media giants to carry out that censorship on their behalf. And so there does seem to be a situation where some of the social media platforms have either become so large that they could arguably be described as being a part of public life rather than a private company, or that they've become so burdened with the desires of government to censor certain views that they are, in some situations, extensions of the government rather than being free of the government. So I wonder if, as things change in that direction, we might say that, yes, Twitter is a private company, but there ought to be an expectation that it adheres to public standards, especially the public standard that you and I are most interested in, which is that people ought to be free to express themselves as they see fit. Yeah, I definitely hear that argument. And, you know, I'm I'm unrelenting in my criticism of what a lot of these platforms have done. I just I have yet to hear the proposal for well if we here's a here's a law we could tweak them in this way and then it would be better. I've yet to hear the one that I'm sufficiently persuaded by and in fact a lot of the so-called so solutions I hear from Republican lawmakers to who are who are mad the way I am mad about the censorship they'll say well if we change their section 230 which is the statute that governs them and then I'm like and then what what's step 2 you would do that but if you think through that, it seems to me like there would be a lot more censorship. And then the same goes for the Democrats want to break these companies up. Like, well, what? Wh- why would if there were 17 Facebooks with just all the same people working at the? Why would it be any different? I don't. <laughs> the, a lot of the ideas seem very not well thought out to me. Um, so I want to I want to concentrate my fire on fixing this problem by take tackling the part of it that can be fixed, which is the the government side of it. Maybe if they feel less pressured to do these things they they won't respond in this way and this has worked in, in recently in some other industries you know the, the the era of corporations kind of bowing to woke, woke culture i'm definitely not saying it's over but it has gotten a little better there are a couple examples of you know netflix you know keeping Chappelle and putting out that statement saying you know what if you really don't, are going to be offended by everything everyone does just don't work here Disney is kind of like reversing course. It just brought back its previous CEO. I, I think 
in the corporate sector, at least, this is not you know, going to be true in academia or like places that are totally immune to market forces. But at least in the corporate sector, there's a little bit of a, of a pushback all of a sudden to kind of the woke activist people who want to censor everybody and you know, don't like confrontational, provocative speech. Um, so my optimism is that in response to things like the Twitter file, and now we have Elon Musk in charge of the company, uh, he can. He's more committed. At least he's state. He's stated better commitments to these issues than the previous leadership. I say let it play out and work on constraining the government's abilities to make these companies take bad decisions. That is, is I think, a, a viable route forward. Other than some of these other ideas that impose, like, oh, maybe they should be a common carrier and they'd have no right to. Well, if you you have to pass a law to do that. And then that would be very fraught because like Elizabeth Warren is going to try to inject like, but if they spread misinformation, then they can be taken to like, there's so many ways that could go, that could go wrong and actually make things worse. Because as for as angry as we are about a lot of the decisions that were made, we have to be a little careful because, you know, warts and all, even as imperfect as it is, your ability to speak and to share provocative contrarian ideas, libertarian ideas, conservative ideas, even far left ideas, ideas outside of the mainstream consensus is greater than it has ever been in human history. And social media is largely to thank for that. It has been a gift for those of us who don't fit narrowly into the boxes approved of by the New York Times. And I would not want to, you know, by throw the baby out with the bathwater and accidentally return us to some kind of, you know, pre 1990s standards of who's allowed to speak and or what what platforms are available to you to speak where there's only, a, you know, your couple cable channels and your couple newspapers, and there's no other domain for speech. That seems very bad. So I'm, I'm, I'm urging extreme caution on, uh, on on ideas that might make the situation worse. But there's plenty we can do on the uh, that we already the tools we already have at our disposal to stop the bad government actors who have wrought so much of this chaos. Robbie, thank you very much. My pleasure, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.